story of Hezekiah, and uh, I want to get back there today. It's a brief review. We saw that God is going to begin to take a hand with the church in chapter 33, and those who are hypocritical will be in trouble, but those who are overcoming and growing will stand to see uh, Christ. And then we see that he is going to bring trouble on uh, Edomia or Ammon and Mo- uh, What am I trying to say here? Uh, the Edomites in chapter 34. Uh, chapter 35, he is going to be blessing his people, says to strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Just as in Hebrews 12, he tells us that he chastens every son whom he loves. And he uses almost the same words here. Paul perhaps was recounting this and thinking of it even when he wrote that in Hebrews 12. That we should be strong and fear not, be courageous, because God is going to bless us. And that's what the chapter 35 is about. Uh, certainly that will bleed over into the millennium, but I believe it starts with the faithful remnant of God's church even before the millennium comes, because he is going to bless his people, as Agai says. Uh, on the 9th and 24th of the, what is it, the ninth month, I guess. So we know that that is coming. We don't know which year, but we know that uh, there are promises of blessing and certainly can be confirmed. Verse 10 of 35, it says, The ransom of the eternal shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. So, those whom Christ redeems and chooses to bring together in the latter temple will sing and rejoice, and of course their joy will never be taken away because they will then be a part of the first resurrection or change when Christ returns and help institute the millennial function in the world tomorrow. Now, there's a change here from that blessing that it shows in chapter 35, uh, and I want to read Verse 1 of chapter 36. Now it came to pass in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the defense cities of Judah and took them. So he had, uh, uh, the nation of Israel had already been taken into captivity. And now the Assyrian came against Judah and had taken most of the cities of Judah. But only... Jerusalem had held out and had not been besieged, attacked, and destroyed as yet. So uh, here is where the Assyrian begins to address the capital of Judah. I want to leave that for a moment. This, I, it's interesting that Isaiah picks this story up where he does. Uh, God promises blessing, and then he says the Assyrian is going to come. Now, remember that Isaiah is a prophetic book for the end time. It's not just a historical book. But I want to go back to Second Chronicles, uh, about chapter 30, Second Chronicles, because the background that leads up to this is mentioned here in Chronicles. Well, let's, let's even go back further before we come to Chronicles. Let's go into Second Kings first, Second Kings 18. Now, most of you probably remember that sometime back, I think it was a matter of months ago, I gave a sermon uh, about Hezekiah and mentioned some of the parallels between his life and that which uh, we experienced under Herbert Armstrong. 
And I think that there are some very, very striking similarities there. Uh, however, I wonder, since Mr. Armstrong never faced the Assyrian, if he were not a minor type of Hezekiah in a way, but we have a stronger type yet to come. Uh, I, I think that that may also be true in terms of the two witnesses. Uh, Herbert Armstrong and Garner Ted both witnessed to the world in terms of a message of calling. Uh, and certainly there were types there of Joshua, I think, perhaps with Garner Ted and his difficulties and problems in life. And, uh, and with his father, uh, who basically led the church in right paths. And then Mr. Armstrong had the heart attack and even said that he had died, but lived anyway. And, uh, that happened with Hezekiah. God extended his life 15 years when he was about to die. So the parallels are interesting. However, and most of us, I think at one time or another, thought that the Armstrongs were the two witnesses. Uh, and Mr. Armstrong even told me personally in 1981, I am Bell. So I went home after he said that and, and studied Haggai and Zechariah and gave a sermon about it. And, uh, and at that time, I assumed that that was probably correct. It's the reason I gave the sermon. But he and his son died. Some expect them to be resurrected and leave that witness, but I don't expect that at all because Haggai shows that there was a former temple built and that it would be destroyed and that there would be old men who would see uh, the latter temple arise under the two witnesses because that's the context of Haggai and Zechariah 3 and 4. And that they would compare the glory of one with the other. So, Obviously, we're not talking here about uh, the temple in Jerusalem or some physical temple. We're talking about two temples built within the confines of the end-time context of the church. Uh, and all of you pretty, pretty well know that story. I'm just rehearsing it here a little bit as we get to Hezekiah. So I think that there may have been a minor type of the two witnesses with Herbert Armstrong and his son, but they're both dead, and they're not going to see the remnant put together and the latter temple built. Uh, there will be other leaders to do that. But they did build an end-time temple, and it was a temple that was built with a calling, basically friendly message, and the, the final two witnesses will be uh, more of a final warning as opposed to a calling message. Most people whom God is working with has already been called, or have already been called, under Herbert Armstrong. And now God, out of those many, is choosing a few for the latter temple. And that's where you and I are today. We need to be qualifying. We need to be preparing to be a part of that latter temple, because we must do better than what we were doing in worldwide. Organizations are trying to redo worldwide. But God blew worldwide apart. And what we were doing in worldwide then was not sufficient. We must do better. We must be stronger morally, uh, doctrinally, uh, and in worshiping God in spirit and in truth to a greater degree by far than we ever did before. So we have a challenge to grow and to overcome, and that's what he felt all seven of the churches is to overcome that you might be in my kingdom. 
So no matter which church you might think you are back in Revelation 2 and 3, tells them all to overcome. So all have problems, even though there are some who say we have no problems, the rest of you are the problem. Uh, they are looking through rose-colored glasses in their own mirror. And uh, sad to say, they're going to be hurt and frustrated when trouble comes. At any rate, back in 2 Kings 18, uh, Hezekiah came to reign. Verse 3, he did that which was right in the sight of the eternal, according to all that David his father did. And I think that Herbert Armstrong essentially did that. God says there in Zechariah 1, he was only a little displeased. And then when the heathen came in, he became sorely displeased. So he wasn't entirely happy with Herbert Armstrong. He became very upset and angry when the Tkachis took over. Uh, and has been angry at us because of our lackadaisical coasting attitude, resting on our oars, instead of really being in a mode of growing, changing, overcoming, and becoming like Christ. But Hezekiah essentially was a righteous man. And uh, verse 7, the Lord was with Hezekiah, and he prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and served him not. And yet at the same time, uh, Hezekiah, as it shows down in verses 13, 14, 15 through there, uh, gave the king of Assyria gifts of the things that were in the temple. Tore all the gold off the doors and the walls and, and gave everything to the king of Assyria in tribute to save his hide. Now that isn't recorded in, in uh, Isaiah 36, 7 and 8. And I wanted to go back and pick up this historical record. Now it may be that that will not be repeated in the end by the leaders of the end-time church. And that may be why this part of the story is not included in the prophetic message. This is a historical message here. And yet, there are lessons here for us not to repeat what Hezekiah did. Now, if there was danger of that being repeated in the end time, or at least an imminent danger, I don't think God would have left that out of the story. It's back here, though, for us to read. Uh, it's back here for us to take note of and to be cautious about. Uh, there are a lot of people that are going to be truly frightened when the beast power arises and starts putting pressure on. And it says the whole world will worship the beast except a few of God's called chosen people. The whole world. So there's going to be enormous pressure to accept this world ruling system that is a counterfeit of God's kingdom that Satan and the leaders of this world are going to set up. Uh, we had better be very aware and very much on our toes spiritually in order to withstand that. And Hezekiah, at this time in his life, simply did not have the strength, the courage, the character uh, at first to resist the king of Assyria. And, of course, it didn't work. And then it picks up the story and shows that the same thing that we're going to read back in uh, in Isaiah. So I'll drop that one for the moment. You can read it more. I did go into it more completely in that previous sermon. Let's go then to Second Chronicles. And to me, this is amazing. Remember last, two weeks ago when I spoke, I did not get to this section, and I told you I would do it today, the next time I spoke, which was today. And you'll recall this context from our Passover season this past year, 
in which we began to understand that the first day of unleavened bread is the Passover day, and that the night we much observed and remembered in the night of watchfulness is the Passover night. I won't go back and, and go through all of that again. There are tapes on it. But suffice it to say that we went through Chronicles to show how Hezekiah revived Passover to keep it in the way that it should be and had not done it, had not been done in Israel for many, many years. So they did a second Passover here. And the parallel between what we were doing and the story here in Chronicles was amazing. Now, after that Passover time, I read chapter 31 to you. When the doing of the Passover had been straightened out, now I, I'll remind you that we did not get it all straightened out by the time even the second Passover came and we observed it. We still had not reinstituted the Passover night as the night much remembered, observed, watched, and careful in. That knowledge uh, was preached even after the second Passover. So this coming year, hopefully, will be the first year that we have kept it, everything in the right order and in the right manner, fashion, and attitude uh, in a long, long time in God's church. So the parallel here is very interesting to me. But when all the Passover thing was finished, let's go to chapter 31. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel that were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the images in pieces and cut down the groves and threw down the high places and the altars out of all Judah and Benjamin and Ephraim also and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned, every man to his possession into their own cities. Now, I did give a sermon shortly after Passover on idolatry so that we might look into our lives and be working at getting all the idols out of our lives, whatever those idols might be. The greatest idol, of course, is self and our ego and our pride about where we're from or who we are or what we've done or how smart we are or what we know. Or uh, There are all kinds of pride. So we did that, and we're working on that still to this day, I hope. And Hezekiah appointed the courses of the priests and the Levites after their courses, every man according to his service, the priests and Levites for burnt offerings and for peace offerings, to minister and to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the tents of the Lord. Now, I read these to you, and I mentioned at that time that they destroyed the idols, then they got the government order, then they reinstituted tithing, and we'll go on to some other things that have happened since. But right there in the middle of Isaiah, it seemed important to me all of a sudden to start talking about government. And I spent the better part of two sermons talking about the right kind of government, a godly government, as opposed to uh, men ruling the way we did in worldwide and the abuse and misuse that went on there and that how we needed to change that and to have government according to the last part of Ezekiel 34, not the first part, and we won't rehearse all that, but we are all familiar with it. Uh, why was I moved to that? I, I got on my knees and I say, Father, show me what needs to be spoken today. And this, that started coming to mind. Right in the middle of Isaiah, and it wasn't really germane to the, the context all that much, except that it talked about how our teachers would see our teachers and they tell us which way was the right way to go. And that's what set me off, because that's 
before the millennium. We always use it as a millennial scripture there in Isaiah 30:21. But the context of the whole chapter is before the millennium. And God does tell us he's going to give us the right kind of leadership and the right kind of teachers. So that started uh, those two sermons on government. Then if you go on down, once that which was done, well, it, even verse 3, it talks about the, the morning and evening burnt offerings, the Sabbaths, the new moons, and the set feasts, and recently instituted uh, new moon uh, Bible studies to keep track of the new moons. So that's in here as well. <laughs> Moreover, verse 4, he commanded the people that dwell in Jerusalem to give the portion of the priests and the Levites that they might be encouraged in the law of the eternal, which was the tithes, as we see at the end of verse 5. Now, without reviewing this, or even thinking of it, after I finished those two sermons on government, I felt moved to talk about tithing. And right there in the middle of Isaiah, gave another sermon on Malachi and various other scriptures to do with tithing. And why? Well, maybe God has something in mind here. Maybe we need to be doing these things. He gave us the information on the Passover, and then the emphasis was getting the idols out, getting the right kind of government instituted, getting the tithing reestablished, because many, many people in the church have stopped doing that now, and yet God says he's very angry about it with the end-time church there in Malachi 3. And here we find it following the reinstitution of the correct Passover, in such a way as it had not been done since the time of Solomon, as it says in chapter 30, verse 26. So Hezekiah resurrected something that had not been done right in a long time, and I think that we have accomplished that as well. God opened the minds and helped us to see that and to do that. So I think we're on the right track here. Now, let's go on down and see some things, perhaps, that we have not seen before. We're supposed to see God in our lives. If we don't see God in our lives, we're in trouble. Now, I don't, I won't say that God is in our lives more than he is in other people's lives. But they have to see God in their lives, and we have to see God in our lives. And we need to be seeking God with our whole heart and inviting him to be in our lives. And just as the disciples invited Christ to come into the boat when he would have walked on by, we need to invite God to be a part of our lives and to be, to respond to him, in other words. So let's go on down, and we're going to see something that I find very interesting here. Uh, verse 5, end of it, they had, the tithe of all things brought they in abundantly, and, and didn't God say there in Malachi 3, prove me now, he says, I'm angry with you because you robbed me. And they said, how did we rob you? Well, he said, in tithes and offerings. Uh, so that was reinstituted here. <laughs> And it is an issue with the end-time church, or God would not have written it in Malachi, which is a very end-time book. Now, verse 6, And concerning the children of Israel and Judah, the brethren in the cities of Judah, they also brought in the tithe of oxen and sheep and the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated to the eternal of God, and laid them by heaps, or in big piles. In the third month, they began to lay the foundation of the heaps and finish them in the seventh month. So third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, five months, they stacked that stuff up. I've driven through Kansas and Iowa and so on the last, last few days, and here and there I've seen huge piles of grain outside the elevators. The elevators are full. I can't get it all in there. I saw some in Kansas, and one of the men here told me that it's that way in Iowa as well. I didn't particularly notice it on the trip, but 
Hezekiah and the princes came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Eternal and his people Israel. So Israel responded when Hezekiah told them, we must reinstitute tithing. Then Hezekiah questioned with the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps, verse 9, what are we going to do with all this? Uh, it came in in such abundance. And Azariah, the chief priest of the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Eternal, we have had enough to eat and have plenty. For the Eternal has blessed his people, and that which is left is this great store. Now, would it be interesting here at the end if God did not, wouldn't it be interesting if he wanted us to lay up a certain storage, knowing that hard times are coming? He instructed Joseph to do that uh, in uh, Egypt, so there is precedence for it. Now, I know, and I know that I know, that just keeping up food is not going to save us in the end. Uh, we're going to have to have God's protection, and certainly we may come to the point where we pray every day, give me this day, or us this day, our daily bread. Uh, we may have to depend upon God hand and foot like they did with manna. Earlier in Egypt, they laid up stores. Later on, that was gone. And when they went out into the desert, they had to depend on manna and later quail. But we know hard times are coming. And in this context, after Passover, government, uh, tithing, and we'll see some, then, then we see laying up things in stores. So there were great heaps of food available. Then Hezekiah commanded to prepare storage places or chambers in the house of the Eternal, and they prepared them, and brought in the offerings and the tithes, and the dedicated things faithfully. Now, I find this very interesting, and I didn't notice it until this very morning. Uh, when I was in Kansas the other day, a few days ago, I had in mind, because of goats and chickens and cattle and so on out on our land in Anatot, that we needed a smaller storage bin, to have storage for feed for the animals. So I thought, well, while I'm in Kansas anyway, I'll look around and see if I can find a small storage stand to take back that we can use for grains and so on. So near Cal Morton's place there, there was a farm that had three bins on it, three big grain bins. I, I say big. They're at least 15 feet high and about 16 feet across. I don't know how many bushels they hold, but uh, quite sizable, bigger than I thought I might need for you know, animal feed out there. Anyway, we got hold of the man's number, called him, and I said, uh, you got three grain bins there on your farm. Uh, are you interested in selling them? He said, oh, you can have them. Now, how many times will you call a farmer up and ask him if he wants to sell something, and he'll say, you can have it. That doesn't happen much in this world. Uh, usually they either don't want to sell or they have a price. But these, he said, you can have. And I said, well, there's an old windmill down below the bins there. Uh, what would you take for the windmill? Oh, you can have it. Just have to take it down. So later that day, I called him back, and I said, can I come over and, and uh, get a note from you to say it's giving me permission to be on your land taking things apart? And uh, he said, sure, come on over. When I got there, I said, uh, you know, there's a fuel tank there behind the house with a, on a stand that said, uh, do you want to sell it? And so you can have it, too. I 
find this very ironic and interesting. And now when I got to reading this this morning, it really became interesting. Maybe God wants us to have some storage and uh, bigger bins than what I had in mind for some goat and chicken feed. So now I've got to organize a crew of men to go over there and take those bins apart so that we can haul them out and put them up, and then we'll have a place to store food. So did God just open that up? How often do you get free green bins? Now, it's almost like it was when the land opened up to us. It's just you can see God's hand in it, and I... I don't know, does anyone here, do you think you call these farmers around here, will they just start giving you stuff like that? They're pretty unusual, I think. <laughs> so I I think God must have just done that. And maybe this is something he wanted us to do in this context that I didn't think of. Well, it didn't cross my mind at all. I thought, man, three grand, what are we going to do with those? And then I read this and think, well, maybe we need to be storing up some grains and have some food available. Uh, it's interesting, at least. Then it goes on down and talks about Hezekiah in verse 20, and says, And thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah, and wrought that which was good and right and true before the Lord his God. Well, we've got to find right and do good, and be sure we have the truth about any number of issues. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments, to seek his God, he did it with all his heart and prospered. Now, what is the instruction in all the prophecies that we've read in Jeremiah, Isaiah, various other places in the Bible, where God says, you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. And that's what Hezekiah did. And God extended his life and so on a little later. Now, in chapter 32, it says essentially the same thing as it did at the beginning of chapter 31. After these things, now after the Passover was established properly, it says all these things were finished, and then they did government, tithing, uh, storage, uh, and so on, and sought God with their whole heart. And after this was accomplished, then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the ten cities and thought to win them for himself. And Hezekiah saw that the Assyrian was coming. Now that's where it picks it up in Isaiah. So I want to go back there and pick the story up again in Isaiah since that's what we really are studying. I might make one comment about Hezekiah that does not come out in Isaiah. In chapter 32, um, he was sick to death in verse 20, 24. You don't have to go back here. I'm just recounting the story. And you remember the story where uh, he was lifted up in pride in verse 25. And there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. So at some point in there, Hezekiah began to show his ego, his self, self-righteousness, I guess. But he saw it. He understood it. Verse 26, notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Eternal came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. It was after he died that his sons went into Babylon and became eunuchs there. Uh, makes me wonder if there won't be somebody along these lines God is working with here at the end time uh, that will be there to face the Assyrian when he does come. It mentions in verse 31, the end of it, that God left uh, 
these things on Hezekiah to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. It's not what he did with Abraham. He tried him with Isaac, and then he said, Now I know, Abraham. I, I, I knew you before, and I thought you would. I was confident, but now that you've been willing to sacrifice Isaac, I know that I can make you the father of my children. So, God did extend Hezekiah's life for a period of 15 years. Now, it is interesting there, and I, I want to make this comment as well, in the times of the end-time prophecies, that we can show from Genesis 8 that there was a period of 150 days, which was equal to five months. And the only way that is mathematically possible is with a 360-day year. Uh, our compass is set up on a 360-day or 360-degree basis. And I, it's been quite obvious now that there was a 360-day year. God did not have to whisper a calendar in, the, in Moses' ear because you simply had a calendar that was equal throughout. Twelve thirty-day months equal a year. There was no leap year, no need to count anything or to calculate anything because it just happened in that fashion. And probably there was a an eclipse every thirty days when the planets lined up. We only get one occasionally now because they don't line up, but very sporadically. Now, uh, Emmanuel Velikovsky recites, and I think it's worlds in collision over the ages of chaos. I think worlds in collision. I've got the quote that all the calendars around the world changed at the time the sundial went back in Hezekiah's day. And he reviewed how the Mayans and the Chinese and all of the Japanese, all the calendars around the world changed and how the different uh, civilizations dealt with that by having a leap year or somebody, some simply had the 360-day year and then they added five and a quarter days before they started another year. They dealt with it in various ways, but it was something they all had to deal with. Now, fast forward to the day, and we see the end-time prophecies that include a 1260-day period of tribulation, and, and we see from other places that that is also to be a three-and-a-half-year period, and another place in Revelation says that it's a 42-month period. And the only way you can have those three things together is with a 360-day year. So that tells me that we are going to go back to a 360-day year at least by the time of the first day of the Great Tribulation. It has to be in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled. And that gives more ammunition to the idea that God is going to fix what he unfixed in Hezekiah's day. And that's why... This prophecy is included in Isaiah. Why does God need to put this story in Isaiah? He already has it in Second Kings. He already has it in Chronicles. Why does he need to repeat it a third time? I mean, the Bible is a precious book and contains an awful lot of information. Why repeat something three times unless it had incredible significance, especially when it takes three or four chapters each time to do it? Some subjects that are would appear to be far more important to us, he says very little about. Uh, and yet this one, he takes all this space and time 
to talk about three different times. So I, I believe that at some point God is going to change it back, and it doesn't make any sense to me that we wake up some morning and the scientists get on uh, CNN and tell us, well, last night it was very, very interesting for us here in the uh, observatories. There was a shift in the heavens, and we're back on a 360-day year. Now, they would they would say that was time and chance, that it just sort of slipped back into gear. Maybe. You know, how would they approach it? But what if God caused it to be announced by a leader of the church just before it happened? Then what are they going to say? Here's this man, whoever it is, God shows that it needs to be said, and says the heavens are going back, are going to a 360-day year tomorrow or next week or, you know, however it comes out, I don't know. But would God do something that significant without it going somehow to his glory and maybe showing where his church is and where he's working at the end time? I can't imagine it just sort of happening and the world be left to figure out themselves why. I, I can't imagine that. Especially when it's all in his word. Uh, he, he's bound to be going to make some hay with that one. So I see another good reason there why the story of Hezekiah is repeated in, uh, in here in Isaiah, an end time book. Now he doesn't recount all that story in here. But it's back there for us to go back and to read and to understand. But the important part, perhaps, for us is what he does recount here in chapter 36 and 7 and so on. So let's have a look at it. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the walled cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a great army. So a big presence standing outside. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field, right outside the city of Jerusalem. Then came forth to him Eliakim, Hilkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shedna the scribe, and Joah, Asaph's son, the recorder. So Hezekiah sent three men out there to talk to Rabshakeh, the representative of Sennacherib. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say ye now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein you trust? So the king of Assyria is going to come and annihilate you if you don't do what I say. Who are you going to trust in? Do you think that we might face that one of these days? Because it's so clear that the Assyrian is coming against God's, against Israel and against God's church ultimately. Most of Israel will knuckle under and worship the beast. Only those faithful, true servants of God will stand against it. So that's immediately what we have here. God promises that he will bless his people in chapter 35. Uh, he gives us a chronology of things we need to do before the Assyrian comes into our land there in Second Chronicles 30, 31, and 32. And I hope that we are working on accomplishing those things, because they may be very, very important as to whether we are included in the faithful or whether we are part of the hypocrites in Zion who fear, as per Isaiah 33. So it appears after these events, 
I won't try to set a time on it, but after these events, after these things are straightened out, uh, the Assyrian comes on the scene. That appears to be the next major issue that is that we will face. All right, let's go on. Isaiah 36, verse 5. I say, say you, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now in whom you do trust, that, or whom do you trust that you rebel against me? He's questioning his, uh, Judah's commitment here. Now, I think it's important we understand this also from the standpoint of what coded message is there for the church. As I have said many, many times, Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 show that Zion and Jerusalem are code words for the church. And I gave a sermon some years ago in which I explored the idea that Judah might represent, in, in the prophecies, may represent the faithful remnant of God's people, and Israel might represent uh, the overall church, and even part of Judah would not uh, be faithful because all those whom God calls are not going to be faithful. So even some of those who are spiritual Jews are going to have problems. But let's consider this situation in the light of that. That uh, the king of Assyria, whatever form it takes in this end time, the combination of the UN, the Masons, the whatever secret societies, all combine to form a counterfeit world government. It will be iron and miry clay, but it's going to be a lot of people who come together to do it. The Edomites are going to be involved. They'll get the upper hand over Israel, it says, at the end. So whatever the form, final form might be, we do know that there is a great conspiracy against God and against his church. Satan knows who we are, and he'll come after us. So let's take this personal, can we, when we read this? But this is talking about when the Assyrian comes against God's people. Now, I can reiterate this, and perhaps I'll go before we're done to Micah 4, Micah 5, and show that indeed this is the case. But I'll present it to you here, and then we can prove it a little later. So the Assyrian's going to say, I have all power in the world. Who are you going to trust? That'll, that will be his challenge. Verse 6. Lo, you trust in the staff of this broken reed on Egypt, whereon if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all that trust in him. Maybe he's saying here, you look back to Egypt and your God supposedly delivered you from Pharaoh, but can you live on past history? Maybe that's sort of what Rabshak is throwing at them. We aren't the Egyptians. We aren't Pharaoh. We're the Assyrians. And then he goes on to show, a little later on, who all the Assyrian had conquered. So he's throwing a, a big bluff, big bluster in front of Hezekiah and the remainder of Judah. And it was a small amount of Judah that was that remained faithful. Most, most of Judah had been taken by the time he came against Jerusalem. So trusting in Egypt as an alliance wouldn't work. And maybe it's from that standpoint as well. Uh, would we go to this world? Egypt represents sin, symbolically. I mean, why would America go to Egypt today, or Israel go to Egypt for help? What are you going to get there? But Egypt.
symbolic of sin. And if we go to anything in this world to save us or to protect us, to guide us, to help us, God says, that won't work. And the Assyrian even recognizes that won't work. You know, whoever you might have. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, well, he says, all right, you might go to Egypt, you won't get any help there, but you might say, we trust in the Lord our God. Well, what does he have to say about that? Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, Rabshakeh the Assyrian did not understand what Hezekiah was doing, obviously. He didn't know that Hezekiah had torn down the altars of pagan gods so that they could worship the true God. And I mean, that's what it's talking about there in Second Chronicles 30. We've got to get rid of our 31. We've got to get rid of our idols. As church people, we've got to get rid of our idols and put God first. That's the first commandment. We've got to be sure he is first in our lives. But Rabshakeh didn't know that. He saw Hezekiah tearing down altars, and he thought he was tearing down the altars of God. Anyway, he says in verse 8, Now therefore give pledges, I pray you, to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you be able on your part to send riders upon them. Here you're a little city, and uh, if you'll make an alliance with me uh, and go fight our enemies, in other words, throw, throw your hat in with us, I'll give you war horses, and you can put soldiers on them, and you can go conquer the rest of the world with us. And won't the beast at the end time say, join our party, join up with us, and we'll rule the world and make a peaceful place for everybody. Verse 9, How then will you turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Any other alliances the Assyrians going to say won't work for you. Maybe we will try to have an alliance with some of the Arabs. They may represent Egypt. I don't know. That's another thought we could throw in there. Uh, we're trying to defeat Iraq still. Haven't got that accomplished yet, but well, at some point we go to the Arabs and say, hey, you know, we've got this beast power coming up, help us. And the beast power will laugh and say, why would you go to those guys? We're going to defeat them too. <laughs> Verse 10, and am I now come up without the eternal against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So you want to trust God? God told me to come up and destroy you. <laughs> okay. This is just bluster. You know, he's telling them you don't have a chance. Then said Eliakim and Shebna and Joab unto Rebshakeh, Speak, I pray you, unto your servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it, and speak not to us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people that are on the wall. Rebshakeh, cut it down here. Speak to us in Syrian. We do. Or Assyrian. Assyrian. So these people here can't hear this. See, they they were going to sort of take up for God, but they didn't they didn't want the people of the city to know what was going on. Well, it's all laid out here. We know what's coming, and I'm going to tell you what's going on. Let's not try to do this in secret. Let's understand. So these three guys are trying to get Rabshakeh to shut up and speak in Syrian, so the Jews can't hear it. But Rabshakeh did just the opposite. Verse 12, but Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words? 
Has he not sent me to the men that sit upon the walls? I'm not here to talk to you three. I'm here to talk to everybody. The men that sit on the wall, that they may eat their own dung and drink their own fist with you. Because we're going to besiege you and you won't have anything to eat or drink. And you'll drink that which comes from your own body and eat that which comes from your own body by the time this is over. That's a pretty strong threat. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language. He's going to make his threat known. And said, Hear you the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. So he's trying to under, undermine Hezekiah's authority and power uh, and word to the people. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. So that's what Hezekiah will tell you. How come not to Hezekiah? For thus says the king of Assyria. Now here's what the Assyrian says. Make an agreement with me by a present. Bring gifts and offerings, and maybe we won't kill you, but we'll give you war horses and let you join in our effort. You'll be part of Assyria. And come out to me, and eat you every one of his vine and every one of his fig tree, and drink you every one the waters of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. So he's, he's telling these people, you're going to stay in that city in BBCs and drink your own waste. But if you'll come with me, I'll give all of you a vine and a fig tree, and I'll let you have everything you want. Now, isn't that what this new world order is going to do? Are they going to say to the world, if you'll just take our mark, we'll let you buy and sell, we'll let you do everything you need to do, and you'll be blessed, and the world will have a wonderful millennium. Satan counterfeits everything God does. Now, I find it interesting, keep your finger here, I'm going to turn back to Malachi for a moment. Excuse me, Micah. Micah chapter 4 and see if this is not a counterfeit of what God says. Micah chapter 4. The context here is in the last days, verse 1, Micah 4, 1. In the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the eternal shall be established in the top of the mountains. God says he's going to set us on a hill that cannot be hit, be a light to the world. And that has to happen during the time of the latter temple and the... the uh, leadership of the two witnesses. It will be exalted above the hills. The whole world will see that that's the only place on earth that is keeping God's ways. And everyone else is under <coughs> the power of the beast. But what does God say? It says, those will be in Zion in verse 2. The law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the eternal from Jerusalem. That's the church. It will be the only ones preaching the truth is the church. That's the code word in Hebrews 12.23 for the church, Zion and Jerusalem. And they'll rebuke nations far off. That's going to be the start. God is going to start through that witness to show the world that they cannot fight God. And they'll wind up, before it's over, beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning them. And that war doesn't work. And they'll sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the eternal host has spoken it. For everyone will begin to walk in God's way. And then he goes on to show that there's trouble before that, a little later on in the chapter, and I, I won't 
spend time on that right now. But isn't Assyria promising the same things that God brings up? That's the interesting part of this to me. That God says, when I'm done, they'll all beat their swords into plowshares. And the Assyrian comes and says, I'll give you a vine and a fig tree, and you can sit under it. Well, Satan counterfeits everything God does. And it probably will be appealing to most people, because the dollar will be gone, perhaps the euro in charge, and if you don't buy and sell with them, you can't do business. Euro just went up to almost a dollar thirty. It's been slowly climbing. When will people start dumping dollars and buying euros and droves? I think oil, again, is the only thing that's holding that up because they are required to buy oil in dollars. That's the only reason they need dollars anymore. Otherwise, they'd have euros. And when Saddam Hussein started trying to buy oil in euros, who jumped on him? One of the oil men in Washington, D.C. He was okay up the limb. Anyway, uh, let's go back to Isaiah 36. The Assyrian says, give me gifts. Well, didn't Hezekiah earlier, there in, uh, was it Kings or Chronicles, tore all the gold off and gave it to the Assyrian? We better be sure we don't do that. I, I think I recounted in the sermon how uh, Herbert Armstrong opened up the college and opened up everything we have and showed them to the leaders of the world and so on. That was done back then. We do not want to repeat that. That was not the right thing to do, I think. All right, verse 17 then of Isaiah 36. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, and a land of bread and vineyards, beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Satan and those under his rule are going to say, God can't help you. God won't deliver you. Now, do we believe God will deliver us or not? What's Satan going to do when he's cast down, as per Revelation 12? First thing he's going to do is come after God's faithful people. And God will miraculously deliver and take us to a place of safety, as we've always believed, and uh, protect us there. We can't protect ourselves. We can't build our own safe place. God will have to take us there. And even there, if he did not protect us, we would still not be safe. So God is the place of safety, ultimately. Where where he gathers us to protect us, we call a place of safety, and it is only it is only safe because of God's presence. But there's no place on this earth they can't reach you unless God stops it. And he does say he'll send out a flood or a enough to uh, and the earth or they'll he'll send they'll send a flood or an army actress and God will open the earth up and swallow them like he did Korah. So it will be God who protects. Well that's who we trust in. But the world's gonna laugh at us and say, Don't trust in God. Then the then Rabchaka says, Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Look at all these lands around you that we've already destroyed. Did their God save them? Well, you have to say no. So well, what about us? Will God save us? We don't see that happening anywhere else. He, he goes on. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arphad? Where are the gods of Sebarbaum? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? He even says, we've taken Israel. And all Israel had been taken. And even the cities of Judah had been taken. And the only thing left was Jerusalem. Now, based on that record, 
would you say, God will deliver us. <laughs> we know. We're the last city standing. God will deliver us. Now, against those odds, that wouldn't happen. That just wouldn't happen unless God indeed did deliver. And we're going to face that very same thing. We will be at the place where we will die unless God delivers. You wonder why this is a book of prophecy? Why he brought this story forward? I think it's becoming pretty clear. Verse 20, he continues. Who are they among all the gods of these lands that they have delivered their land out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? What, what basis do you have to believe that God is going to deliver? What basis do you and I have? Faith. The evidence of things not seen. There will be no way that we could look at the conditions and say, God will save us. We just simply have to believe it because God told us that. That's, that's, that's what it comes down to. They're turning the tape over here, so I'll pause just for a moment. The just shall live by faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So, will he find faith when he comes back to the earth? I think we will be put to that test. And we will have to live by faith, as he has required Abraham and Israel and Moses and Peter, Paul, James, and John and others to live by faith. How, how did they have to face, as did David, Shadrach, Meshach, and I mean Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and others. How did they face it and we wouldn't have to? It doesn't make sense. If they had to show faith, we're going to have to show it. And if we're faithful in little today, we'll be faithful in much then. We don't have to worry about it if we're faithful today. But the problem is the church hasn't been faithful. We've been going after the gods of this world and doing this world's thing and sort of keeping the peace and holy days by rote rather than putting our whole heart into it. There is where the rub comes. That's what God is trying to resolve now, is that we will seek him with our whole heart instead of half-heartedly. Lukewarmness doesn't get it with God. He spews it out. So, when the threat ends there in verse 20, they held their peace and answered him not a word, for the king's commandment was saying, answer him not. Hezekiah said, don't answer the fool according to his folly. Don't even get into it with him. Just listen to what he has to say and keep your mouth shut. What good would it to argue? You know, God's going to have to deliver you, and anything you say isn't going to help the situation. Then came Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, that was over the household of Shebna the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and told him the words of Rabshakeh. Scared them half to death. And it came to pass when King Hezekiah heard it that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. Scared him half to death too. That's why Isaiah 8 is in there. It says there is a conspiracy. Don't fear it. Fear me. Because that was written in there and then so in the course of time it came to the point that this conspiracy against what was left of Judah occurred. Now that also tells me that if Jerusalem and Judah are code words for the church, then most of the church 
is going down in the tribulation to the Assyrians. The whole church, pictured by Israel and much of Judah, and only Jerusalem and Zion, those who are truly faithful, will remain. Now this, this is showdown time. Everything else is gone. Just Jerusalem is left. The church is basically going to go away, and it's going to be only a faithful remnant that remains. Are you and I going to be part of that, or will we be the hypocrites in Zion who fear when all this comes? Will we have courage and faith, or will we not? <coughs> so, Hezekiah was also afraid, and he said to Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shem the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So the king didn't know what to do, so he said, let's talk to Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet and a man of God. So, <coughs> what did Isaiah have to say? They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, The day is a day of trouble, and of rebuke, and of blasphemy. For the children are come to the birth, and there is not strength to bring forth. Here we are, facing the Assyrian, and we could have the birth of righteousness, perhaps, but we don't have the strength to do it. What are we going to do? Now let's go back, keep your finger here, to my before. God says that when this is all said and done, or before it's said and done, he's going to set his people up on a mountain as an example and a light to the rest of the world. In fact, that's what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. You're the light of the world. Be a light. And then he promises that when this is done, the plowshares will be, I mean, the spears turned into plowshares and so on. And that every man will wind up sitting under his vine and fig tree. <clears throat> and people will walk in God's name. But in the meantime, we come back to reality here. Verse 6, In that day, says the Eternal, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. God has spewed the church out. He has afflicted the church today. And we are in great trouble today. And I will make her that halted, or couldn't walk straight, a remnant, and her that was cast far off, a strong nation or people. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. So once God starts taking his hand with his true people, it's something that's going to continue and never be interrupted again and will be consummated, of course, in the kingdom of God in the millennium. And he, and he shows them what will happen, verse 8. And you, O tower, or watchman, they set a watchtower in the vineyards to keep the, the people from stealing it and the foxes from eating the grapes and so on. So a tower symbolizes the watchman. O watchman of the plot, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So God is going to select the daughter of all the daughters of the church that are out there today, 400 and some at last count. He's going to select the daughter who is the fairest of them all, Proverbs 31. Aren't all the daughters of the church today trying to see who can be the fairest of them all? We're the only place, they'll say. Come here. We're the only ones that are doing it right. We're the only Philadelphians. The rest of your latest is. And nearly everyone takes that view. Uh, we understand the scriptures and that God's faithful remnant is going to come from all groups, all living rooms, and wherever they may be. There are some faithful ones in every group. But every group is not faithful. 
And I cannot say that we in this group are all faithful, or that we are all Philadelphians. I think we all slumbered and slept, and we all became Philadelphians, and we all got spewed out. And we need to repent. I've said that how many times in the last nine years? But we cannot assume that we are okay and everybody else is wrong. Everybody does that, so nobody's overcoming. That's just the view of the thing. I mean, we all want to think that we're all right. But at some point, God is going to choose those who are humble and meek and righteous, not proud, self-righteous, vain, and think they have need of nothing. He is going to choose those who are meek and humble and righteous. And he will work through them to build the latter temple. I want us all to be part of that. I want to be part of that. And that's why we're hearing this today, so that we can work on ourselves and qualify to be part of that. Being in this group guarantees you no more than being in any other group. I think I've said that enough times we ought to get the message. Just being here does nothing for you unless you seek God with your whole heart and overcome and grow. Being in any group is no help unless we do those things. So I'm not trying to hold us as a small group up above the others. We have Laodiceanism to overcome. We have personal problems, organizational problems. We have to work out like everyone else. But at some point, God is going to choose a daughter of Zion. And he says, to you shall it come, even the first dominion. God is going to begin to show his leadership and those he will use as human beings, which he's always done to begin to work his work, his final work upon the earth. So he's going to give power and strength to a daughter of Zion. But in the meantime, verse 9, now why do you cry out aloud? Why are you suffering? Why are you crying out to me? Why are you crying to each other? I mean, the whole church is doing that. There's trouble everywhere. There's splitting and splinters and everything going on. Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? Herbert Armstrong died, and we had no one that we all could look to. And we've got lots of leaders today, but no one of the stature that everyone feels confident in looking to anymore. It's changed. So why are you crying out? Is there no king? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. So he uses the birth analogy here again. And that's the reason I turned back here, because... Uh, Hezekiah tells him, we're, we're here, but we don't have any strength to bring forth. We can't deliver ourselves, using the analogy of a pregnant woman who can't deliver herself. And God uses the same thing here. And what does he tell us when we find ourselves in pain and travail to give birth? He says, be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail, for now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. There you shall be delivered. There the Eternal shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he tells those who would be faithful at the end, uh, when they find themselves in travail and having trouble bringing forth, and I, we have trouble bringing forth Christ in our lives and giving birth to his character, and we're having trouble fighting this world and uh, departing from it. So he says, when you find yourself in this position, get out of the city, and go dwell in the field. And we've been following uh, that instruction, along with Zephaniah 2, that says, before the financial crash, gather yourselves together, and if you're meek and humble and righteous, maybe you will be protected. 
So this is essentially the same message here. There you'll be delivered from the hand of your enemies. So God is going to begin gathering his people together, and then the Assyrian is going to come against them, and there is where they'll be delivered. If they stay behind, they're going to be swallowed up by the Assyrian. Okay, verse 11. Now also many nations are gathered against you, but say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look down upon Zion. That is, against Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as the sheaves into the floor. Now, isn't that what he says in Haggai? He will stir the people to come and build the latter temple. For God is going to stir them to come. And then what does he tell his people? Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. We'll see that also in Isaiah 41, and I won't go there now, because we'll get to it shortly. For I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain to the eternal, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now didn't he tell us, tell Babylon, uh, where was that? We read it recently, that he would, when he scraped the towers and so on uh, in Babylon, that he would turn their substance to a holy use. He would give it to God's people. That's what it says here. So he says, gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. That's speaking of Judah, according to Bart's commentary. And Judah represents the church. He has laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the feet. Israel will be smitten. But Judah, or part of Judah, spiritual, the spiritual Jews, are going to be delivered and protected. And he says that very much the same way. See, here in Hezekiah's day, they'd already destroyed Israel, taken them captive. They'd already destroyed most of the cities of Judah, just as much of the church is now being destroyed. And there was only one bastion of strength left. That was the city of Jerusalem. Now, what does he say here? Verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, you, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall he come forth to me, that is to be ruler in the church, or in Israel. God is going to take a very small group and give them power and strength. What are the two witnesses going to do? They're going to rise and thresh. The Assyrian cannot do anything against them. Uh, they will be protected. They will turn people's water into blood. They will pronounce plagues upon them as they see fit. Not that that should be a fun thing and not a, anything anyone would want to do, but it's something that has to be done. God is going to give that power. It's going to happen. So God is going to raise up someone out of a little group of Judah. He prayed it was a very small town outside of Bethlehem. Uh, didn't amount to much. Of course, Christ came from Bethlehem. He prayed to Aaron. And he is ultimately the one who will save Judah and Israel. But he's also going to have physical leaders, as we'll see here as we read on down. Therefore will he give them up until the time that we, she which travails has brought forth, verse 3. In other words, we can't see any deliverance, we can't see any way out of this, but God is going to send leadership, and we will bring forth, we will give birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So God is going to begin to do a work that will get people's attention, and they'll begin to show up. They're going to be stirred to action. 
And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the eternal, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now shall he be great to the ends of the earth. Isn't God going to bring a witness against the entire earth? And it will be a great witness against the beast and the counterfeit religion. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. So he's talking about the time in the end when the Assyrian comes and whatever form it might be. And we should, when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men, and they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod and the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. So God is going to confront the Assyrian. Now whether God does it in the way he did in Hezekiah's day remains to be seen, or whether he uses the witnesses and even others, because it talks about seven or eight, or if you add them together, I'm not sure which way it is, and the commentaries don't know either, possibly even 15 men, but I think it, it means seven, even eight, uh, who will go out against the Assyrians. So it's not just the two witnesses. Somewhere in this uh, equation, there are other men who stand up. I think that is obvious from this. When the Assyrian comes in, we're going to send others out. Now, how did God do it in Hezekiah's day? Let's go back to Isaiah 36. Well, verse chapter 37, actually, is where we are now. Uh, verse 3, it says, We've come to the birth, there's not strength to bring forth. Hezekiah says, What can we do? You know, I almost feel that way now with us. We're trying to grow, we're trying to overcome, we're trying to obey your law, we're trying to seek you with our whole heart, and we're struggling and we're struggling, we're trying to give birth to Christ in our lives, we're trying to deliver ourselves from the world, and we're so impotent to get it done. It's so hard. And I, that's kind of where Hezekiah was. He says, man, we're right at the birth, but we can't shut it out. That's pretty much where we are. And I think that Based on that, when you compare it with Micah 4, it's time for us to get out of the cities, go dwell in the field, and begin to have a presence there that God can work with, because he says that's where he will be delivered. All right. Hezekiah is still speaking here, isn't he? Uh, They sent him to Isaiah and says, this is what Hezekiah says. Verse 4, Maybe the Lord your God will hear the words of Rebshakeh, whom the king of Assyria's master is sent to reproach the living God, and will reprove the words which the Lord your God has heard. Wherefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. There's only going to be a remnant that is left. God says, unless he saved a small remnant in Isaiah 1.9, it'll all be wiped out. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Here's the word from the man of God. Thus shall you say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Be not afraid of the words that you have heard, wherewith the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. God took it personal here, and he will with us. <clears throat> They're coming against those who are faithful to God. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, <laughs> And he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Is it already? We're about done, aren't we? I was just getting cranked up good. 
Well, maybe that's a good place to stop anyway, because it's just been pronounced that God is going to cause the Assyrian to fall. And we'll just, we'll just stop there, and God willing, take it up there next time to hear the rest of the story. But we know we have a promise there of God's deliverance. So let's stop there for today, and hope you all have the remainder of the Sabbath a wonderful time.